Welcome to the We Are Next podcast, advice and insight from all over the advertising industry to help you navigate your career with confidence. I'm Natalie Kim. And I'm Elle Bath, a senior strategist at Giant Spoon. And thanks for listening. everybody. It's Natalie. Welcome to episode 10 of the We Are Next podcast. I'm all about celebrating small wins. So today I wanted to do something a little bit special for number 10. In addition to this conversation with Elle Bass, senior strategist at Giant Spoon, we're launching our YouTube channel today. I'm so excited. And most of you guys know I usually capture video when I record guests. And so you can see a bunch of clips from the first 10 episodes on our YouTube channel from those conversations. So I've basically taken the best mic drop moments, chopped them out of the episode and uploaded them as video. So you guys can kind of see guests a little more up close and in person and, you know, kind of binge watch some of the the best nuggets of it. I'll include the link to the YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode and also on the main podcast page on the website. Because it's a new channel and doesn't have any subscribers yet, we don't have a custom URL, but as soon as we have enough subscribers, we'll grab one. Second, I wanted to find a way for you to influence the things that we talk about with guests on these episodes so that they're the most helpful to you and whatever you're going through. So I've added a section to the main podcast page on the site that shows upcoming guests that I've scheduled to record, and you can see exactly who I'm going to be talking to and submit questions or topics directly from that page. So you can check it out at we-r-next.com slash podcast. Just scroll down past the latest episode section. Our guest, Elbas, found strategy after studying religion, of all things, working in fashion and dabbling as a producer. And the passion that she has for strategy and the role strategists can play in an agency is really clear from the way that she talks about what she does. We talked about her experience working with premium and luxury clients, how to show up for your teammates as a strategist, and the differences between working at the Giant Spoon LA versus New York offices. A quick heads up before we get started, this is one of those early Skype interviews before I started using the Blue Yeti microphone to record. And I've gone through and tamped down most of the fizzles. Um, There's always going to be a couple in there uh, if you're using Skype to record. I'm going to talk a little bit more about improving the audio for the podcast overall after the interview. So without further ado, enjoy number 10. This is kind of the first time we're meeting face to face. Um, We're formerly in LA at Giant Spoon and we had connected through a mutual friend of ours or mutual acquaintance of ours. When we first reached out, it was like before I got married and all that stuff. And I was like, it's kind of a crazy time. And then by the time we really had arranged this, he had moved to New York. So we're doing this remotely, but I'm, I'm super glad that we're getting the chance to still do it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you talk a little bit about how you got your start, you know, how you really went from being a student to where you are today? Sure. So I think, at least for a lot of the folks that I've spoken to in the advertising industry, their po- their path has been really nonlinear. I think the percentage of people that come into the industry knowing that they wanted to do this is maybe like 2 to 5% or right. something very, very small. <laughs> right. um, my background, I worked in the fashion industry um, after school. I went to school for religion, of all things. I really wanted to understand... Um, you know, what people, what motivated people, what made them tick and what were they passionate about? And I felt like a really good way to understand that was understanding somebody's religion because it impacted your outlook on life, um, your values and how you're responding to the world around you. Um, 
So that said, when I was a student, I did a lot of research that now looking back was strictly qual and to a degree quant. Um, and this was, you know, of course, centered around religion. And then finally, I put the pieces together that, oh, my gosh, this is a career. Somebody can do this for a living. Um, but all throughout school, I worked in the fashion industry, um, you know, paid my dues at Nordstrom on the sales floor, <laughs> moved up. Um, I ended up being a personal stylist. So out of school, I was hired um, to do personal styling in New York, working for Stacey London from that show, What Not to Wear, um, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, she basically was starting a national network of personal fashion stylists and needed somebody with a background um, both in styling, but also on like the business end of the spectrum mm -hmm. um, that could help lead the network. So I moved to New York to do that. And most of our work was um, in B2B. That's where we were making our money. So advising companies like J. Crew and Gap and Westfield Malls on how they built out their styling program. Um, so I went to work for J. Crew and I was doing that and went home for Mother's Day um, in 2013. And I ran into a friend that had just graduated from the VCU Brand Center. And he's like, you know, how are things going in New York? Regular conversation. And I was like, they're great. I was like, but I don't really know where my career goes from here. And he was like, well, you should look at the Brand Center. He's like, you know, obviously you've been helping um, different brands scale without really knowing it over the course of your career. So um, it seems like that could be something that would really interest you. And so their application deadline was in three days. So I called my <laughs> boss at the time and I was like, hey, so, you know, obviously I'm on vacation, but what do you think about me extending my vacation by a few days? So um, I scrambled, I wrote the 20 page application in three days, sent it in and I think it was a week, week and a half later, they got back to me and they said, come to the VCU Brand Center. Um, so that's sort of my very like indirect way of ending up in advertising. But from there, um, I just, I worked really hard and I loved what we were doing. Um, and I just found myself really being immersed in the cultural aspect of branding, um, understanding, and this, you know, has a strong tie to my religion degree of, um, why people like the brands that they champion, um, how brands act and behave in culture and how that's built. Um, so after graduation, I ended up moving to LA working for a pretty large agency um, that was Saatchi and Saatchi's premium and luxury agency. And that tied nicely with my background in fashion. Um, and then I ended up at Giant Spoon um, working on Old Navy, which also tied to that background. And from there, I've sort of grown and evolved and worked um, across categories on different brands. And right now I'm working on HP. So um, sort of touched a lot of things, but it's, it's very much one of those situations where you're going through life and you you're making the most out of the opportunities that are in front of you and you don't necessarily know how what you're doing or what you're learning is going to impact you in the long run. But when I take a step back and look at, you know, the past five or six years and like all these pieces just sort of fit together to get me to where I am. So, um, it's been a fun journey. <laughs> I'm so, so glad I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think you're a perfect example. You sort of epitomize like I mean studying religion in college and like on the surface it seems like totally un unrelated to you know what you do and then working in fashion but like you said kind of like looking back you can see you know those ties and how it led you to where you are and I just did a the the mini sode that I I released like a few days ago. I was talking specifically about that where it was like 
there are definitely like you don't have to force it, but there are ways that whatever I, I'm always convinced like whatever you've done is applicable in some way to what you want to do in advertising. It's really just how you look at it and how you frame it. So I think I, that's that was such a great example of exactly yeah. that. Totally. And you're bringing in a different point of view, right? Like versus somebody that might've come straight out from school with a business degree or an advertising degree, you've had sort of a pretty robust life experience beforehand. So that, you know, impacts how you think strategically, the ideas that you're bringing to the table and, um, sort of the other soft skills, I think around strategy. Right. Right. So on your LinkedIn profile, you mentioned a a quick stint at mother and you state that you went into mother to be a producer but that one question made you realize you were really meant to be a strategist. So I was really yeah. curious to ask you what that question was. Totally. So that was a, uh, that whole summer and thing was very interesting. So in between the first and second year of Brand Center, um, everyone does an internship. And a lot of folks end up finding their internship through alumni referrals or through agencies that are actively recruiting from us, knowing that we have this um, summer intern program. Um, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't really falling in love with a lot of the agencies that were coming to us. Um, I actually was thinking about taking a post in Berlin with a super small niche agency that was very, very creative. Their background actually was originally in architecture. So they did a lot of like really cool cultural installations and um, like in-store experience essentially. Um, But that said, like the mother opportunity popped up and production is not something that we talk a lot about at the brand center. You know, that's not something that you really encounter until you're out of school. So I was like, well, with all this background in styling and being on set, like I can definitely try my hand at production. So I sent in my application and they're like, great, come to mother, like be a producer. But from day one, I found myself being super jealous of the strategy interns (laughs) (laughs) because they were getting to practice what I had been doing for the past 365 days, almost all day, every day. And um, a few of them were straight out of undergrad or they really had no experience in strategy prior to applying. They were more of a cultural fit for mother. And so I found myself like wanting to jump in and help them and almost wanting to do their work for them. (laughs) So sort of like being in this weird position where I'm sitting on the sidelines, not allowed to touch it, but watching it from the outside. So one night I was there late working. Um, we were doing, there was an upcoming shoot for Target. And one of the, the strategists um, that was not an intern was sitting close by. And she was like, I feel like you might know a lot about um, eco brands and um, just sort of retail in general. What do you think about this brand? And it was just like one question, one opportunity to start riffing. And that turned into a whole conversation about um, about retail, about that brand. And that conversation ended up leading to the driving insight that was their campaign. Um, and ended up seeing that being taken forward and like through the strategy funnel and then onto their creative partners, um, and turning into what became a national campaign. Um, and I was like, that's it. (laughs) That's what I want to do. I want to do that all day, every day. Um, production is still something that's really interesting to me and I, um, will help out on different side projects from time to time. Um, and I think that knowledge is really useful and that background is really helpful, but, um, that's, that's what made me go back to school and be like, okay, I want to, I want to be a strategist. (laughs) I love that moment of clarity, like just the clouds parting. (laughs) Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's interesting how people find strategies because I feel like strategy for me, it's just like so seeped into the cracks of everything, whether it's interest in people who aren't like me or culture. And 
I don't know, just like how we behave and what we're motivated by and what brands stand for, all that stuff. And, but it's not, I don't know, like it's, it's so amorphous and for me, like all around us, but yet not tangible. And so I think it's difficult for people to identify it sometimes because it is so cerebral and I don't know, in our heads. And so I, I love when there's concrete examples of, oh my gosh, yeah, this is kind of who I was meant to be in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like that moment where you find what you want to do in the world is super powerful. And that for me as well was just another example of things coming together. Like the brand that she was asking about was, um, was a retail and fashion brand. So it just happened to be sort of a lot of things. Right. Um, molding at once. So that's always cool when that happens. I also love that you describe yourself as research ambidextrous again on your LinkedIn profile mm -hmm. and your, and your uh, portfolio. Um, since the quant side of research and measurement of campaigns and the work we do uh, will you know, definitely keep becoming increasingly important for strategists to yeah. really understand. So how can those just starting out begin to sort of build those quant skills and how how much do people really need to know on the quant side? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I became very interested in it from a validation standpoint and from um, a, a really sort of, I think, deep-seated drive to uncover the truth, not just what I was, you know, taking in from the world and synthesizing it and spitting back at it back out as, as strategy, but what's really happening here. And I think quant is an amazing tool, um, to uncover little nuggets that can inform your entire strategy and maybe even your entire brand direction. So, um, very early on, I saw the importance of, um, finding an analytic partner. Um, I, I kind of hope that this becomes the norm in the future where you have a brand strategy strategist directly working with someone who is, um, an analyst or a data science data scientist. And so um, to get to what you really want and what you really need for the brand. Um, so I, in school, I ended up working with someone who was really knowledgeable about data um, and really understood like how to pull data points together and paint a picture of who a consumer was or um, what was happening in the world with data. And so I learned a lot from her and I also learned a lot about the right questions to ask her. Um, so taking my research and then synthesizing that into, you know, the five or six things that I wanted her to dig through her pool of data for. Um, and so that was really good practice for going out into the real world, working in an agency setting where I then felt like I had the skill set to do the same thing of um, the agency that I worked at for the data department was pretty siloed um, from the strategy department, or so I felt, and we didn't work with them on a day-to-day -day basis. So it took initiative to go to them and be like, okay, how do I find more about more about X, Y, or Z? Um, you know, what is what are the research questions that I need to be asking to lead me to um, to these data points? Um, so it was a lot of reverse engineering in the beginning. Um, and then from there, once I felt like I knew how to do it, I was doing it myself. So whether it was deploying my own surveys that were a mix of qual and quant um, or deploying surveys that were strictly quant based, um, I just sort of took opportunity to learn from those around me and do my own research, you know, use 
Google as a tool um, to figure out this part of the business. But I think it can be, it can seem really scary at first, um, especially when you feel like you're more of a creative person or more of a right brain person rather than a left brain person to dive in and start doing that. Um, but it's just like with anything, it's baby steps and you'll pick it up as you go. Um, and I think the tools that at hand are really helping us with this, right? Like, um, platforms like Facebook and Instagram, Google are all making data more accessible and they're humanizing it Mm -hmm. by the way they talk about it. Um, so the more exposure to it we have, I think the better, Um, and I think it's also, it's becoming more accessible through social media. You know, you're seeing small things like likes and shares and attribution. Um, it's making it a little bit more digestible. Um, but as for like the mix of Quan Quan, I stole that line from my old boss because that's what she says as well. (laughs) And it's, it's very true. And I think in research, um, you can't just be, um, one anymore, you, you really have to be ambidextrous. Understanding really what the numbers mean and while they're, and why they're important. You know, I feel like for me personally, I never had to like work deeply with the numbers, but I had to know in order to, you know, do validation and and do reporting on the stuff that we had done really understanding what numbers were important or what ones we should even be looking at to pair off with the goals that we had set with our client, uh, really to educate them. And I think so much of our own education as strategists around numbers and and analytics is driven by usually like the client's demand um, and the Mm -hmm. client's uh, lack of knowledge as well around, you know, what they should really be looking at. And they're really looking to us to say, okay, here's how it did. And here's the proof of how it did and and how we can adjust things to make things better against what you're trying to achieve. And I think uh, that's, that's driven a lot of the, the need for strategists to, to really understand the numbers, if not like be the ones actually like working with um, the data but I think what you said about, you know, social media really making it more accessible and something that we can grasp more, I think that's a that's a really great point. And because it, it really is just translating like what do the numbers mean in terms of human behavior and what people are actually doing. And when you think about it that way, I think it becomes a little a little less scary for us. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because we're putting it within a framework that we know and understand. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you've carved out expertise, helping brands really understand what premium means. And Mm -hmm. I think premium brands and premium customers are a very specific category that requires, you know, a certain approach. So can you talk about some of the work you've done to really understand premium brands and their customers and talk about some of the challenges that you've seen working with premium brands as clients? Sure. This could be a long conversation, so <laughs> stop me if I dive in too deep. Um, and I'll start with the client piece because I think that that one begets the other. Um, so in my experience, um, luxury brands don't always have a luxury budget. Um, so I sort of like the saying of having champagne taste on a beer budget, right? And it's because of where they are in their marketplace, right? Like they're 
the items that they're selling, whether it's a service or an actual product, are more expensive and therefore not attainable to your average consumer. Um, so they might not be making as high a profit as we might think they are because they are a luxury brand and we're perceiving them to be um, glitz and glamour and gold. Um, but in terms of business, their operating margins are smaller and so therefore their um, their marketing budgets tend to be smaller. Mm -hmm. So with, when working with luxury clients, um, there's a certain degree of scrappiness that you have to employ. Um, whether that be figuring out how to work with content partners that they can, you know, share, share equity between, or, um, you know, getting the biggest bang for their buck by really taking things in house and, um, sourcing creative yourself, whatever it may be. Um, there's just a certain scrappy mentality. And I, I genuinely love that because it's more of a challenge. Um, and I think the reward is greater when you see the final product. Um, so, so that, that is one piece. Um, another piece is, um, oftentimes I, or not oftentimes, I've just noticed that brands will make a product that they think is luxury when in fact it's premium. So premium to me is sort of a new category of products that's arisen between luxury and mass. And if luxury was all about, um, arguably the unattainable, um, the things that you would like to achieve, but might not be able to achieve or afford mm -hmm. and mass is about something that's available to just about everyone. Premium sits really square in between. Um, and it's really about refinement. It's not about ostentation. Right. Um, and there's a high emphasis placed on value. Um, so I've done a lot of research around that sector and really showing brands how, while they might've thought they were luxury, they're actually premium or on the flip side where brands might think they're mass, there's actually an opportunity to play in the premium space. Um, and there's of course subtle changes that you can make to put yourself in the premium category. So if you're coming down from luxury, it might be, um, a subline or a subdivision of your brand that's a little bit more entry, lower price point. If you're on the math side of things, maybe it's focusing on your copy and your packaging, um, increasing your price point just slightly so that it feels slightly more aspirational and then backing that up with your communications and with what you're doing, um, from a creative advertising standpoint. In terms of the the brands that I've worked on this for, so um, on the luxury end, I've worked on the Ritz Carlton and their highest in um, product offering, which is their resort hotels, mm -hmm. um, which is a collection of a really beautiful niche hotels in um, amazing destination locations around the world. Um, Indian Motorcycles, which is definitely a premium motorcycle brand, um, sits above Harley, both in terms of, and don't tell Harley this, quality and price <laughs> point, um, but is, is, is not necessarily in, in the luxury category. Um, and then recently, what I've really been working on is helping HP understand how some of their product offerings really fit more in the premium space than they do in luxury, because their initial marketing and advertising really centered around selling some of their products as a luxury item. Mm -hmm. And so um, we provided them with a lot of research on how it was actually premium and what that looks like both domestically and also globally, because um, this is certainly a global trend that we're seeing. Right. Thinking about premium, it's so interesting thinking about it in terms of not just price point and what the packaging looks like, but when I think of premium and how some brands can feel more premium, even if they don't place themselves squarely in the premium category, is you know how do you make that 
user experience, whether it's on the website or customer service or something um, more effortless, less, you know, have less friction because I feel like it, user experience plays such a huge role in yeah. just feeling like, wow, this, this brand or this product, you know, it's easy. It saves me time, you know, effort, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you can just like move through it like a little bit more effortlessly, I keep saying that word, but I think it really describes almost yeah. like a feeling of premium versus like, oh, totally. it looks premium or it is yes. premium as a product. So that I, I think is sort of the new definition of luxury, particularly mm -hmm. for millennials. Luxury can be defined of like, you know, ordering your favorite meal from the comfort of your home because right. it's about convenience or it can be um, where every touch point you feel like is leaving an impact. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the new hallmarks of, to your point, what a premium brand is. And it's, it's like showing that a brand has thought through everything yeah. from, you know, the lighting in their showroom to the UX UI experience that you have when you're, you know, going through their website or um, making a purchase. Mm -hmm. All of these things collectively make a brand be perceived as premium. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's an element of thoughtfulness. And to a degree, I think it is the new expectation, particularly from our generation, yeah. um, where we do have so much choice. We almost want a brand to to cut out the extra, um, show us what we really need, and provide an amazing experience throughout the entirety of our journey. And I'm sure there's a lot of education that for clients that that you know leads to because they're in their mind, in a different generation, maybe what they think of as luxury or premium is totally different. Yeah. So let's talk about working with other teams for a second. What are sure. some things that you've learned about being a strong partner to, you know, whether it's creatives, account teams, producers, mm -hmm. any other team that, that you're working with as a strategist? Yeah, I think this is a good rule of thumb for, for anyone in any industry, but communicate early and communicate often. Um, be super clear about what you're doing and what you're working on. Um, and for, for me personally, it's, I always strive to play the role of a champion, um, really being their partner as a strategist, you know, not just doing research and in an instance where you're providing a brief, um, providing a brief and then walking away or just feeling like your work is done. Um, the real work is done sort of on the cutting floor, right? It's when creatives are sitting there brainstorming and they have questions that pop up that could potentially lead to them. Um, maybe getting lost in their own thoughts, but if you can be there to be a sounding board and to be supportive and um, to basically be Google, you know, you already have <laughs> all this research and you have this um, sort of like vast repository of knowledge, um, like sit with them through the process if they're willing to invite you in on that and, um, and really be there to help. Um, and then as far as account goes, um, champion the work, you know, champion your strategy, champion the creative work, um, understand what the client really needs, um, both in terms of their business, but also on a day-to-day -day level. Um, you know, be the person on the call that is the highlight of the client's day <laughs> because they're probably chugging through a million different things and, um, being on a call with an agency or maybe even their strategist who's, that might be when they get to have fun that day, you know, talk about the new creative things that they're producing or um, how they feel they're making a difference on the brand that they work on day in and day out. Um, so I think to sort of put that in summary, it's letting your passion shine through um, and approaching it like 
you are a resource and a, and a tool for your team members. Um, and just, you know, showing up, (laughs) right. Like, um, just being there when, when they need you, you know, whether it's, you know, 12, 12 PM before a client presentation and the art director is, you know, you know, going at working on the deck and the copywriter is there providing copy. You might not have anything to contribute at that point, but just your presence and your support, I think means the world. Um, and I don't see enough strategists doing that, or at least I haven't, um, so far. So I think that's something that's really important and often overlooked. Just showing up is such a great phrase in and of itself. And I think it's especially, I mean, throughout, but I often think of also at the very beginning, because often, you know, if we're putting together a brief, our own creative brief off of a client brief, it's really where the project really kicks off and, you know, where, where the ideation is starting. And if you're not coming to the table, super excited about whatever the project or client or opportunity is, like how can, you know, your creative team or the rest of the teams that are there at the briefing feel that, you know, what you can't expect them to, to like generate that themselves. So I think it's super important to almost bring like an extra level of, um, enthusiasm and, um, to, to those meetings. And then, as you said, I think that it's great advice to along the way, just, you know, being that presence, even if your, you know, portion of it is, um, you know, largely complete or you don't have anything at at that, that exact moment. But I think that's great advice to, to just, to just be there for those people in, especially in very stressful times. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Especially if you can be like, the calming force. Like it's it's gonna be okay. Totally. (laughs) Don't have to freak out about this. Yeah. You recently made a big move. We talked about this at the very beginning, but from LA to the New York office of Giant Spoon, and that's awesome. You're able to, you know, stay within the agency and, and make a location change. Yeah. Can you talk about the difference between how Giant Spoon culture expresses itself in New York versus Los Angeles? Yeah, totally. Um, so I love both offices equally and it's really cool to have the opportunity to work in both. I think that's a very rare situation for a strategist in an agency. Um, I was actually fearful that I would need to leave the agency in order to move to New York. So it's really cool that that was able to happen. Um, but in terms of culture, I think the, the wider culture of the city impacts the agency itself. So LA, um, you know, more laid back, right? Like more sunshine filled. Um, even just the decor of the office is a lot more white and, um, (laughs) clean and minimal. Right. Um, there's less hustle and bustle. Um, but there's a really strong sense of community. And I think that is really impacted by the space that we have. You know, we have a really awesome office that takes up the entire floor. And so we have room to move around and, um, a big table that we eat lunch at almost every day together. So there's a really cool communal family vibe. Um, and it's, it's really rare and special. And I love that even as we grow and scale as an agency, um, we're really striving to protect that and keep that culture intact. Um, and there's a lot of communication between the off the offices, probably not as much as we would all like, um, because we get busy and, uh, with the time difference that makes an impact, but, you know, we all know who is on different teams and, um, to a degree, what are personal areas, areas of expertise is. So there's a lot of cross communication that I think impacts the exchange of culture between the two offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in New York, it's, 
it's New York, you know, it's um, fast paced. It's um, sometimes a little bit stressful because you're trying to get things out the door. There's more running around, but like you feel that energy and it's the energy of the city, I think, reflected in the office. Um, and it's really cool. It's really neat to have, again, that opportunity to, to be between the two or to have gone between the two offices. Um, because culturally the core remains the same, but how it manifests is slightly different, I think, because of the environment of the city that it's in. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's good. How do you stay inspired and creative as a strategist? I like to go outside of advertising. I think oftentimes advertising can be an echo chamber where we're talking to ourselves and we're not really involved in the culture around us. Um, so if it's for a project or for a brand that I'm working on, like I really believe in um, spending time with the person that you're trying to study. So um, for example, I, I worked on Walmart at one point, so I would go to Walmart, <laughs> um, a couple days a week and just sit there and watch people and talk to people about what they were buying, um, and you know, what they cared about and what they were looking for from the brand. Um, that's the stuff that you can't find from behind your computer. I think it's really important as strategists to get out from behind our computer and like be involved in culture. For me personally, I find a lot of inspiration from art and the art worlds, um, music. Um, and I look a lot to places outside of the United States. Um, I think sometimes as the U S we can be a little bit delayed in, in our trends or like the pulse that we have on what's really happening in the world. I find a lot of inspiration in Europe, um, like Northern Africa, the Middle East, um, Asia. It just really comes from all over. I like to read like a wide range of blogs. Um, Instagram is an amazing tool for getting a peek into people's lives. Um, and also to really just pick up on, on trends that are emerging in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's a lot about just seeing is our job. You know, I think to a degree we're, we're paid to see and to pay attention and then to translate that into action items. Um, so I think, you know, the places where, where I feel like I, I can see the most or where I'm immersed in, um, in the everyday life of other people, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, sort of go-to places are train stations, airports. Um, you know, I, I'm that person that could sit there, like, at a cafe or something and just, like, watch people go by for hours right. and um, just sort of collect that information like a sponge and then turn it into ideas and thoughts about what's happening. That's what I think is so unique about New York because of the density of the city mm -hmm. that you can't help but brush up against all these corners of humanity and everyone's emotions and how, you know, their day is going is sort of like mm -hmm. on display for you. And, and it's a great place to kind of just soak it up in a sort of an ambient way without even trying. It's definitely something that I miss about, about the city. That's so true. And that actually is the biggest thing that I missed about it. Um, and I felt like I was out of touch with culture in Los Angeles because of that. Mm -hmm. So it's been really nice to return to it. Yeah. Um, cause it really impacts the work, I think. For sure, for sure. So last question for you, best piece of advice you've ever been given? Do the right thing as defined by you. Um, I think strategy is a very 
um, nebulous profession, like mm -hmm. your take on something, um, how do you know that that's right or the truth? Um, so it's really important to have opinions and stand up for them, but also to be able to provide a rationale of why you believe that, um, to be true. Um, so I don't know. I, I had a boss at one point that she would just say, do what you think is right. And, um, when I did that, I was always proud of the work that I produced. You know, I always felt like I had worked really hard to get to that opinion that I had. Um, and I was willing to change it. You know, if somebody had a opposing viewpoint or felt like, um, there's something else that could be done to improve upon the thinking, um, you're open to it at that point because you've put in a lot of work to get there. Um, so it was also the, the number one mantra when I worked in Nordstrom. Um, that is kind of their only rule. And so it was funny that I had a boss in strategy that was saying the same thing <laughs> when it was, you know, that was, that's sort of what they lived by. Right. Um, and I find it to be true for, for almost anything. <laughs> so advice that transcends industries. Yeah, exactly. Well, Elle, thank you so much for taking the time. I, yeah. I must say, you know, doing these interviews, I get especially excited when I get to talk with strategists being, you know, coming from strategy as well, because I think I'm even more apt to be like, oh yeah, totally. Like, yeah, I totally relate to that. And so it's yeah. been really fun to, to have this time. Where can people keep up with you online? Yeah. Um, so Instagram is probably the best place. Um, so I'm at a Southern exile. I'm originally from the <laughs> South, so I will forever be a Southern exile unless I happen to go back. Um, and then LinkedIn is a great place too, but, um, you know, you can send me DMS on Instagram or, you know, whatever. I'm always on there. <laughs> awesome. And we'll include all the links to, to your accounts uh, in the show notes as well, but yeah. thanks so much. I'll thanks so much. Know. Huge thank you to Elle for sharing her journey and advice and letting me geek out over strategy just a little bit. I'm always trying to make the podcast better for you guys, taking into account also that it's really just me running things here and that budget for renting a studio space or more pro equipment doesn't really exist at the moment. But I'm looking into both software that can help improve the audio uh, in the editing process, and I'm also putting out the feelers for a student who can help me with some sound engineering. If that's you or someone you know, please get in touch. I would love to work with someone. How are you guys? I feel like I don't ask that enough, but I'm always really curious to know what's going on in your lives and how you're feeling about it. You can always connect with me via Twitter or Instagram, especially Instagram. I'm pretty active on there. My handle is at NatalieYKim, and it's really more my personal accounts versus the Weir, official Weir Next account. But either way, I'd love to connect with you guys and message back and forth. Just get to know you a little bit better. Advice is so much better shared. Leave us a review on iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And while you're at it, subscribe to our weekly email. It's a small dose of advice and insight delivered Mondays. You guys are so awesome. Thank you so much for helping me get to episode number 10. And here's to the next 10 to the 10th power episodes of the We Are Next podcast. I'm Natalie, and until next time, you got this.